0: So well, if you would take your Bibles and turn with me to the gospel according to Luke, Luke chapter 6, after two months, we're going to go back to the Gospel of Luke chapter six this morning, where we're going to be looking at verses 27 uh, to, to 36. Luke chapter six verses 27 to 36. As you're turning there, I'll remind you that uh, Jesus's ministry at this point in Luke's gospel is now in full swing. Jesus Uh, has been demonstrating His authority through teaching and through mighty deeds, and the Jewish religious leaders have consistently been opposing that authority. So authority and opposition are kind of the themes of the Gospel at this point, and that's the stage as we come to chapter 6, where Jesus is in the midst of a lengthy sermon on discipleship. This sermon is sometimes called the Sermon on the Plain. It is probably the same uh, instance as the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. Um, And in this lengthy sermon, Jesus reminds His disciples that life in God's kingdom is upside down compared to the world. God's kingdom is upside down compared to the world. And today's text is the heart of that sermon. So, with that far too brief reminder in view, follow along with me as we read in God's Word This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, uh, beginning in verse 27 of Luke chapter 6. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also, and from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either." Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray together as we consider God's word. Father, help us now to hear your word uh, faithfully with hearts that are ready to trust you and to obey what you have said. Lord, please help us to understand the words of the Lord Jesus here and help us to follow them. Lord, please keep me from error. Please give our church discernment that we would both hold to the truth and stand firm in the truth and grow in the truth, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, my aim this morning in this sermon is twofold. I want us to think clearly about Jesus' teaching so that we might obey fully what the Lord demands. That's the aim. We want to think clearly so that we can obey fully what Christ commands. As Christians, one of our foundational convictions is that we are bound by the authority of God in Scripture to obey the commandments of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself tells us this is essential to our calling. Think about the Great Commission. As we go about the work of making disciples, part of that task is to teach them to do what? To obey all that the Lord has commanded. What Jesus says we are bound to do, not in part, but in full. And yet to do that, we need clear thinking. I know the word radical is overused in our day and age, but it applies perfectly to this passage uh, today. Jesus is radical here. And by radical, I simply mean that He gets to the fundamental nature of something. That's what Jesus is doing in this text. He gets to the core of our understanding of love, and then He does the thing that Jesus is so prone to do. He just turns it upside down. And He radically reorients what we think about love. And that, friends, illustrates the need for clarity in thinking about this passage. Because of the radical nature of the Lord's teaching here, there is a very broad spectrum of views on what Jesus might mean in these verses. For example, some Christians read, Luke in, uh, read Jesus in Luke 6 and conclude that Jesus is a pacifist. That He denies any and all use of self-defense. Other people read Jesus as intentionally speaking in hyperbole. He doesn't really expect anyone to live this way. He want to obey fully what Christ commands. And to do that, we're going to need to think clearly about what the Lord is teaching in these verses. So here's my plan for how we're going to do that. You can think of the sermon as having two perspectives this morning. First, we're going to briefly just zoom out and consider three cautions that function like guardrails that keep us from misunderstanding the Lord. So we're going to zoom out for a second and consider three cautions. Then we'll zoom in for the main part of the sermon, and we're going to consider two marks of Christian love that will lead us, I hope, to obedience to Christ. So two perspectives. We're going to zoom out, then we're going to zoom in, all in hopes of thinking clearly so that we can obey fully what Christ commands. Let's zoom out then for a minute and consider three cautions that can help us, uh, that can help guard us from misunderstanding the Lord. Caution number one. Jesus' teaching in these verses is not strictly prescriptive. Jesus' teaching is not strictly prescriptive. It's easy to read this text and try to find a detailed prescription of steps that we ought to take. But that is not Jesus' intent here, friends. The Lord is more concerned with the overall disposition of your life than He is with a prescriptive approach for every situation you might encounter. To be sure, Jesus speaks concretely, even using illustrations from everyday life. But even then, His examples are just that. They're examples that help us understand the broad attitude that He expects of His followers. In fact, if we take a very narrow and prescriptive approach to Jesus' teaching, then we risk missing the point. Jesus is doing more than giving you ten steps on how to live. He's actually telling you to reorient every action and attitude of your heart. It's much bigger than a mere prescriptive list. So that's caution number one. Jesus' teaching is not strictly prescriptive. Caution number two. Jesus' teaching is not absolutely prohibitive. His teaching is not absolutely prohibitive. For example, verse 29. Jesus tells His followers that when someone strikes you in the face you should turn the other cheek. Is Jesus prohibiting the use of self-defense in the face of evil? Does this mean that Christians can never support, for example, a government's use of force? Well, no. That's not what Jesus means. Verse 29 is Jesus' command to His individual disciples, not to a cultural institution as a whole. He's not commenting on how a government uses its authority. But how do you know that, you ask? because of other passages in Scripture, like the one we read this morning, Romans 13, where the Apostle Paul clearly sees the government as having a rightful use of authority, even to defend people against wrong. So remember, friends, whenever we're reading the Bible, we're always seeking to have Scripture interpret Scripture. We we never interpret a passage in isolation. We're always looking at individual passages in light of the whole scope of the Bible. Some of you are, are doing a read through the Bible in a year uh, plan this year for your, your devotions. That is really wise. Because as we get a scope of the whole, it helps us understand the particular. And so we understand even in this a passage like this that Jesus is not being absolutely prohibitive. The rest of the Bible helps us understand what he's really getting at, which is a general attitude of the heart, as we're going to see in just a moment. So that's caution number two. Caution number three, and this is perhaps the most important one. It's so important that I'm going to say it over and over in the sermon. I'm just telling it to you now so that you won't miss it. Caution number three is this. Jesus is not giving us a plan of salvation. Jesus is not giving us a plan of salvation. Jesus is not saying you must obey these commands in order to be accepted by God. Luke 6 is not salvation by works. Rather, Jesus' point is that you obey these commands because you have been saved by God. Because you have been reconciled. To God, This is an important point to remember, friends. Obedience to Jesus reveals a transformed heart. But obedience to Jesus does not create the transformation. I'm going to come back to that throughout the sermon because it's vital for obedience. But I want you to see in the text why this is true. There are two places where you can see that Jesus is not giving us a plan of salvation. One at the outset and one at the end. Notice the first line of the the whole passage. Verse 27. But I say to you who hear, who is Jesus talking to? Well, not people who have properly functioning ears, but people who respond to the Word of God in faith. This is why all throughout the Gospel you find Jesus saying, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, he who has a heart to believe, let him believe. So Jesus is talking to those who receive His Word. Then look at the end of the passage, verse 36. Jesus says, be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Notice that pronoun, friends. Whose Father is Jesus referring to? Your Father, He says. It's definite. It's personal. The disciples are not obeying Jesus so that they will be sons of God, the disciples are obeying Jesus because they are sons of God. He's your Father, the Lord Jesus says. And therefore, obey Jesus' teaching. So it's not a plan of salvation. Friends, those cautions, I hope, are going to work like guardrails for the rest of the sermon. They'll keep us from going off course and getting off in the ditch when we try to understand what Jesus is teaching. And Lord willing, they'll help us arrive safely at our destination of obedience. Jesus is not strictly prescriptive, though He is clear. He's not absolutely prohibitive, but He is consistent with the Bible. And He's not giving us a plan of salvation, though He is building on the grace of God given to us. So, with those cautions in mind, let's, let's zoom in now on the Lord's teaching and let's consider what He says. There's two sections to the passage beginning in verse 27, and then the second one in verse 31. And from those two sections, I want us to note two marks of Christian love. Two marks of Christian love. The first comes in verses 27 to 30. Christian love surpasses the world's understanding. Christian love surpasses the world's understanding. As Jesus comes to the heart of this sermon, He gives a series of commands that call His disciples to a radical standard of love. Notice the four imperatives. Verses 27-28. to Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Friends, this is a standard of love that goes beyond anything Jesus' disciples would have heard before. The law of Moses called God's people to love their neighbor. But Jesus goes deeper than that. He commands His followers to love their enemies as well. You see, it's not enough in God's kingdom to simply check the boxes of the law like the Pharisees were so adept at doing. Jesus calls His followers to something more. You guys do know that's the problem with the Pharisees. It's not that their standard was too high. It's too low. You can never be accepted before God on mere rule-keeping. Right? And so if we, if we don't see Jesus going deeper, we'll miss this we'll miss this point. He's he's going beyond just love your neighbor. He's saying love your enemy as yourself because loving your enemy evidences what? A truly transformed heart. Of course, as we consider that command, the question that leaps to our minds, or at least it's a question that leaps to my mind, who exactly is my enemy? Who's my enemy that I'm supposed to love? Well, the parallel passage in Matthew makes it clear that Jesus is talking about those who persecute God's people. In fact, Luke makes the same point. Look back up at verse 22 here in Luke chapter 6 and you see a similar emphasis. Jesus says, verse 22, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. So in the context of the sermon, as Jesus is preaching, enemies are those who persecute the people of God. Enemies are those whose convictions about life are different than yours whose fundamental beliefs about the universe are different than yours, and perhaps even hostile to yours. Those are the enemies that Jesus has in view, and he says we're supposed to love those people. I was reading this week about the rise of uh, persecution in in sub-Saharan Africa. 17 of the 50 worst countries for Christian persecution are in Africa, and a number of those 17 in Africa are across Africa's midsection, the fat part of the continent there, right below the Sahara Desert. Those countries are experiencing a dramatic rise in, uh, per, in Islamic persecution against the Christian faith. Dramatic rise. Just to give you a, a personal anecdote, I was in one of those countries in 2001. That's only 19 years ago. And we were working with a people group. And the people group next door had just received their first Islamic missionaries. And that people group next door is now one of the most radicalized people groups in Africa, 19 years. So persecution rising dramatically across sub-Saharan Africa. And it takes the form of Christians being kidnapped and held for ransom, oftentimes Christian leaders. Just two weeks ago, a Nigerian pastor was executed after 18 days in captivity because his church couldn't pay the ransom for his life, and so he was killed. Cut his head off. What should we do in response to those kind of things? Jesus says you should love your enemies and you should pray for them. You shouldn't repay evil for evil. We shouldn't insist on an eye for an eye kind of justice. Instead, we should love our enemies and treat them with goodness and kindness that they refuse to show to us. Friends, just think about how challenging that is for our brothers and sisters in places like Mali and Burkina Faso and Cameroon. They're on the front lines of loving their enemies. And maybe one practical takeaway from this sermon is that we ought to pray for them more, that the Lord would give them the grace to do what Jesus commands, which is to love our enemies. It's not just those faraway places, though, that this applies to. It's not just faraway countries that have to wrestle with Jesus' command. Think about our own context here in America. It may not be as severe, but it's still present. We live in an increasingly secular culture. I don't even think that's debatable anymore. An increasingly secular culture, where the one thing that absolutely cannot be tolerated is convictional Christianity. Our culture will put up with anything else, but not that. Not-convictional Christianity. Every week, there's a new story about attacks on religious liberty. Every week, there's a new story about Christians under fire for biblical convictions. How do we respond to those things? Well, if we're not careful, we can easily get sucked into the mentality that tries to match people blow for blow. You, You know what I'm talking about here. The signs of this are sadly far too common to spot among professing Christians. Inflammatory language, right, talks of payback, this language of getting what we deserve, very militant views of striking back at people. Don't misunderstand me. I'm going to be the first to argue that there's a place for standing up for righteousness in the public square. I'm not talking about that, but I am talking about the attitude of the heart when you go into the public square to stand up for righteousness. I'm talking about what goes on in our hearts and minds about this tendency to view folks in the culture as though our only obligation is to crush them. Friends, that's not Jesus' command. We do have a deeper obligation. Listen to what the Lord says. His teaching gives us a more important obligation and that's to love our enemies and to pray for those who mistreat us. You know, the call to prayer is key in this passage. As one commentator has said about this text, interceding before God on someone's behalf is the highest expression of love. That's true. It's the highest form of love. Prayer, in other words, is not a passive religious duty, but it's an active expression of love. This is a good check on our hearts, friends. This is a good place to test yourself against the Word of God. Can you honestly pray for people in the world who mistreat or oppose you and more broadly the people of God. Can you pray for them? Right now, think of the person who you consider to be the church's most dangerous human enemy. Maybe it's a specific person. Maybe it's a group of people. Can you pray for that person? Do you? Do you pray for them? If not then there may be some hardness of heart present in us for which we need to repent. As Christians, we love our enemies. At the same time, notice that Jesus' command goes beyond praying as well. Verse 27, he says, do good to those who hate you. In other words, take tangible action to show mercy and compassion to people who don't deserve it. What does that look like, you ask? Well, notice verse 29, where Jesus gives a series of illustrations. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic. In Jesus' day, a slap in the face was a form of insult. So to bridge Jesus' command over to our day, the point here has to do with uh, retaliation. If someone insults you, don't respond in kind even in those moments where you know you are right, you don't have the authority to demean a person. Even in those instances where you know that you're standing up for the truth against the lunacy that is this fallen world, you do not have the right to belittle and insult and demean someone. That's not obeying Jesus. That's not Christian love. And not only, listen to me, not only should we not participate In that kind of behavior, we shouldn't celebrate people who do. Instead, we should remember verse 22. Look again at verse 22. When insulted for the sake of Christ, what do we do? What do we think? We think we are blessed. When insulted for the name of Christ, we are blessed. Remember, brothers and sisters, we follow a crucified Savior. If you want to know what the life of a Christian looks like, look at the life of the Lord Jesus. We follow a crucified Savior. I read recently a wise Christian thinker who said that in post-Christian America, this is convicting for me, in post-Christian America, the church must get over its addiction to being liked. Man. Get over our addiction to being liked. Friends, we're just going to have to come to grips with the fact that convictional Christianity makes us outcasts. This is not surprising. Peter told us, We're aliens and strangers in this world. Sojourners and exiles. And praise God, we haven't felt the full effect of that in the history of our nation, but we're going to. So we need to get over our addiction to being liked. And we need to recognize that if you're going to stand on the Bible and believe things convictionally in the Scriptures, you're just going to be weird in the world's eyes. Are you okay with that? Are you okay with being an outcast? Because that's what Jesus is saying here. There will be insults and ridicule and opposition. But then again, that's not surprising. Whom do we follow? A Savior who literally took blows to His body and prayed for God to forgive His enemies. So just like the Lord then, who turned the other cheek, so must we. We never have the right to return insult for insult. Still, Jesus presses us deeper. We reject retaliation and we embrace otherworldly generosity. Notice verse 30. Give to everyone who begs from you and from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Now, the context here is what in Jesus' day was called giving alms. He's referring to people who have no ability to meet their basic physical needs. And in such situations, we as Christians are called to help in accordance with our ability. What's more, we should help even when we know the person won't be able to return the favor down the road. That's what Jesus means when he says, give without demanding anything back. He's not talking about mere repayment like a loan. He's talking about helping a person whom you know, honestly, is never going to be able to help you back. Help that person, Jesus says. Give to that person. So if you were to try to just put it more plainly or more, you know, or more pithy so that you remember what Jesus is saying we should never value possessions over people. Never value possessions over people. If our love of stuff keeps us from generosity, then we're not living in step with the Lord's command. Friends, I'm, I'm piling up the points here in order to press home to you how radical this is. Jesus' teaching far surpasses anything the world understands. Do you see it? In the world's eyes, you would never love your enemies. They may say they're going to love their enemies, but they don't. You would never love your enemies. You would never do good to someone who mistreats you. Those things are preposterous. And that's exactly Jesus' point. That's precisely what he's trying to say. Life in God's kingdom defies the world's understanding. We could even say it in a stronger way. Life in God's kingdom confounds the world. It just confounds the world. Which means apart from grace... The world has no category for this kind of love. Now, all of that raises a question for us. If this is so world defying, if it's so out of sorts, and according to our natural understanding, how is this kind of love even possible? How can you even live this way? Well, the answer, friends, brings us to the second mark of Christian love. This time, verses 31 to 35, Christian love reveals the gospel's power. Christian love reveals the gospel's power. In verse 31, Jesus gives us the golden rule as it has come to be known. Listen again to the Lord's command, which really just summarizes all that he just said. Verse 31, and as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Friends, there's some simplicity there that's compelling and convicting, isn't it? You see, it's not enough to avoid treating people badly. Jesus calls His followers to actively treat people well, even to the point of preferring them just as you would want your desires to be preferred. This is important, friends. The Christian life is not merely the avoidance of bad things. The Christian life is the purposeful, active embrace Of what God says is good. So it's not enough just to avoid sinning against people. We must also actively seek to do them good. So we avoid retaliation and we actively seek our enemy's good. I pray for his blessing and I pray ultimately for his salvation. Why? Because that's what Christ commands. And that's how I would want to be treated Jesus then goes on in verses 32 to 34 to illustrate this kind of love. And He does so with a series of negative statements. You see there's three verses there, 32 to 34, but they're all making the same point. So we'll just consider verse 32. Notice what Jesus says, verse 32. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. Now, when Jesus refers to sinners here, He's not trying to single out like notoriously wicked people. He's just simply referring to human beings in their natural state. This is what people naturally do. They love those who love them. And Jesus' point is that such love is unremarkable. It takes no grace to love someone who loves you. That's natural, Jesus says. There's no credit in it. There's nothing that causes it to stand out in the world's eyes. In fact, that kind of love is often just self-oriented. You scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. It's a this for that kind of love. And Jesus says it's just, it's just natural. It's, not, it's unremarkable. There's no grace in that. But instead, Jesus is pressing us beyond a this for that kind of love. And Jesus is telling us to embrace a this in spite of that kind of love. Something that goes beyond Nature. He's calling his people to display a kind of love that flows only from grace. And verse 35 makes this clear. Notice what the Lord says, verse 35. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the most high for he is kind to the grateful. He's kind to the ungrateful and the evil. So you hear Jesus summarizing there, but there's also a new component Isn't there? Jesus speaks of a heavenly reward as well as being known as sons of God. Now here's where we have to remember those guardrails from earlier in the sermon. Is Jesus saying that we become sons of God by loving our enemies? No, not in the least. Rather, Jesus' point is what we noted earlier. Loving our enemies reveals that we are sons of God. Loving our enemies reveals that we have Received the heavenly reward. And we're so confident of that reward that we're willing to live radical lives in the here and now. This is so key for us to understand, friends. The only way for sinners like us to display such radical love is by first receiving that love from God Himself. You've got to receive the love of God in order to show the love of God. In fact, notice the last phrase of the verse. For God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Who are the ungrateful and the evil? We are. We're the ungrateful and the evil. The only reason we know God's kindness is because while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Romans 5.10 Do you see the connection? Jesus is not telling us To love our enemies so that God will love us. That's anti-gospel. That's the opposite of good news. That's bad news. Jesus is saying good news here. He's telling us that we love our enemies because God first loved us. His enemies. Listen, it's one of the bedrock truths of the Christian life. And it's one that we need to remember again and again. Any good that we do as a Christian is only a fruit of God's goodness to us and in us. Any love that we display is only a fruit of God's love first given to us in Christ. Jesus is the vine and we are the branches, remember? We bear fruit only by being in Him. Our heavenly reward is Christ Himself. And our great hope is that by holding fast to Christ, by abiding in the vine we will hear the Father say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. So go back to that question I asked you just a minute ago. How can anyone live like this? How is such radical love possible? The answer, friends, is only through the Gospel of Christ. And I don't mean that tritely. Remember, we want to obey fully the Lord's commands. So I'm not... I'm not trying to give you an easy out today. I want our church to be full of Christians who defy the world, love the lost, and contend for the truth. So I am not interested in giving you a pat answer. I am not interested in assuaging your conscience today. Instead, I mean this with a white-hot intensity of heart that leads to obedience. The only source for radical, world-defying love is the Gospel of Christ. It's the only source. Think about it. The Gospel tells me that God will right every wrong, either at the cross of Christ or on the last day. And therefore, in light of Christ's work, I can love those who hate me. I can choose to endure injustice. I can choose not to retaliate. I can even pray for people who oppose the church. Why? Because I know that God will right every wrong in Christ. You see, the Gospel strengthens me to obey God. And on and on it goes. The Gospel also tells me that I've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. How many blessings has God withheld from you? None. All of them. In Christ. He's given them all to you. You're rich in Jesus. You're rich in Jesus. And therefore, you can live a life of radical generosity even towards those who might take advantage of you even towards those who would never be able to return your kindness. You can do good to them because God has done good to you in the Gospel. You see, the Gospel strengthens me to obey. The Gospel tells me that all of my sins have been forgiven. And therefore, when someone sins against me over and over and over and over, I can forgive them. Why? Because God has forgiven me in Christ. You see what I'm saying? The Gospel here, friends, is strengthening us. In, the, in these ways and in so many more, the Gospel is actually equipping us and emboldening and empowering us to love and live as Jesus commands. So it's not a stretch. It's not a stretch. It's not, uh, it's not trite. It's not just a pat answer to say that the Gospel is the only way to obey Jesus' commands. Friends, pray. Pray. Pray that God would open our eyes to see more and more of the power of Christ crucified. Not just the power that saves us from hell, praise God, but a power that equips us to obey the Lord. There's so much more to the Gospel than what we have seen. And if I'm just being honest, friends, our love for the Gospel is far too weak. And I say that because mine is. Pray for God to help us to see the power of Christ crucified. So that we would be equipped with that power to live in the here and now in ways that defy the world. We embrace the gospel by faith and then by faith we choose to obey Jesus. Empowered by the very love of God that we first received in Christ. This is Jesus' radical call to love. It surpasses the world's understanding. And in doing that, it reveals the gospel's power. Friends, as we get ready to close, I want to make sure that we understand what a powerful witness this kind of love is to the watching world. Christian love of this kind also testifies to the world that there is a God who is merciful and gracious. Notice verse 36. We're going to come back to verse 36 next week. It, it really belongs to both sections. But I just want to get a glimpse of this this morning. Notice the God-centered perspective that verse 36 adds to Christian love. Be merciful, Jesus says, even as your Father is merciful. The command to show mercy is an application of Jesus' call to love. What is mercy other than love and action? I choose not to treat someone as they deserve. They may have wronged me, but I don't wrong them back. I show mercy, and in doing so, I love them. But as I show mercy, notice what else I show them. The character of God, Jesus says. I show them the character of God. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. You see, when the church loves this way, the world sees a glimpse, albeit an imperfect one, of what God is like. And in His grace, God often uses that glimpse to open the door for gospel proclamation. Do you remember what the Apostle Peter said in chapter 3 of his first epistle? He, remember, he's writing to persecuted Christians who are being slandered. And Peter tells them, don't slander in return, but instead, treat your opponents with gentleness and respect. Which is That's just Peter commenting on Jesus' teaching here. That's all he's doing. Love your enemies, which means when people slander you, treat them with gentleness and with respect. But do you remember what else Peter says happens when, that, when we live that way? When we refuse to slander in return, the world sees that, And the world says, wait a second, why did you act that way? And Peter says that Christians then have an opportunity to give a defense or a reason for the hope that is in them. Do you remember that? The hope there is demonstrated in your willingness to love your enemies. How does the world know that we're hopeful when we don't repay evil for evil? When we don't return insult for insult? That's how the world sees that we're hopeful. You see, it's a powerful countercultural kind of testimony. And when we love and live this way, it opens the doors for gospel proclamation. And it opens the doors for us to be able to tell sinners about a Savior who laid down his life for sinners like us when we were still his enemies. That's why we live this way, because we're concerned for the glory of God in the salvation of his people. So Christian love surpasses the world's understanding. It reveals the gospel's power. And you know what else it does, friends? It also testifies to the Father's grace in Christ. So that, may that be our testimony, friends, to the glory of God and for the salvation of the lost. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that is like a scalpel in the hand of a surgeon. And it cuts away, God, at our hearts, sometimes our hardness of hearts, and helps us to see and to respond in repentance and faith. Lord, would you please help us to think very clearly about what Jesus has taught here so that we might obey Him fully to the glory of God and for the salvation of the lost. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.